Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are, the Anarchist World This Week on your local community radio station broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. The Anarchist World This Week is a one-hour program where we look at current affairs of the local, state, regional, national, international and sometimes... The Universal Assessment. My name is Joseph Toscar. I'm hosting today's program. If you wonder what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers. It's not about not having rules. It's about how do you create a society without rulers which gives each and every individual in that society the maximum capacity to develop themselves to their maximum capacity in a secure environment. Because And why those concepts? Because how do you create a society without rulers? You break down hierarchy, that's right. You break down hierarchy and you share wealth. Simple concepts. It's inequalities in power and wealth which give people power to impose their will on hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on planet Earth in 2019. It's always been like that. But it won't always be like that because it was always going to be like that. There's no point me doing the Anarchist World this week and there's no point you listening. Now, this is a program where we're looking for walkers. If you're a social media type and you like to talk the talk, well, the Anarchist World this week may not be the program for you because social media is all about talking the talk. Activism is all about walking the walk. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable we are. It doesn't matter how smart we think we are. It doesn't matter how much we know. Ultimately, ultimate political authority rests in the hands of people who are willing to take direct action to wrest that control back. And we're seeing across the globe today and yesterday and tomorrow we will see more and more people taking that action to regain both power and share in the common wealth. So anarchism is about activism. But obviously you can't be active without some type of theoretical background, some type of ideas about where you want to go, why you want to go in that direction, and more importantly, how to move down that path. In the anarchist world this week, we attempt... Normally, maybe maybe unsuccessfully, but we attempt to actually do things to encourage you to take action. Because ultimately, it's people who take action 
who will determine the future direction of the society they live in. You can beg and beseech, you can sign in as many petitions as you like, you can uh, go up the right channels, but unless you go outside the right channels and start throwing rocks at the tent from outside the tent, nobody will take any notice of you. And that's the big problem in Australia in 2019. Too many of us are caught up in the social media jungle. Too many of us are talking the talk, but few of us and not, not many of us are walking the walk. And it's time, 2019, where we should look at walking the walk. If you're a talker, maybe it's time you became an actor. That's right. You took control of the situation. Okay, let's move. Let's, let's talk about democracy. It's a very interesting word, demos, democracy of the people. Democracy. Rule of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, like there are all types of Christianity and all types of uh, various branches of the Muslim faith and the Hindu faith and the Jewish faith, it's the same with democracy. There are many interpretations. We live in a representative democratic society, theoretically. A representative democratic society where the citizens, you and me, Every three to four years, whether it's a national or state election, three years at a local, four years at a local level, have the power to put somebody in your local council, in your local state parliament, in your local federal parliament to make decisions for you over the next three to four years. So representative democracy is the act of filling in a ballot paper and giving somebody else the responsibility to make decisions for you for a fixed period of time. And that's what we have. Now, the problem with representative democracy is there's a number of problems. One, it's easily manipulated. And as I said before, anarchism is about breaking down hierarchy, devolving power, and sharing wealth. So in a so-called representative democratic society where you have wealth, where the wealth of the nation and the ability to communicate ideas is part and parcel, rests in the hands of that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, the one percenters. So we have a system of government where you elect a representative to make decisions for you where the people who have the major impact on the nature of the debate, on highlighting what is and isn't important, is that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange, communication, which in plain English means those people who exercise power. So that's one negative. The second negative is that you are giving somebody a blank check. You are saying, you're my boy, you're my girl, you're my whatever, and you have I have faith that you will do what you promise to do. The problem with representative democracy as we practice it in Australia is that rep- we live in a society where politics is dominated by major political parties who are dominated 
but small sections of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. So during election time, you can be promised whatever you like, but that representative's major responsibility is not to you, the person who voted for them, but to the political party who put them in that position, the political party that pre-selected them for that job. And the safer the seat for a particular political party, the more loyalty that representative has to that political party, not to the people that elected them. That's another Achilles heels of the so-called democratic equation. Then we have the problem that although you've elected a representative, they come under extraordinary pressures from, again, the one percenters, not the outlaw motorbikey gangs, but that small section society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange, communication, which is much, much, much more avarice than any outlaw bikey gang will ever be, that puts pressure on Parliament to ensure that only legislation which doesn't directly impinge on their profitability seems to get through Parliament. So what can we do? Well, you can either reform the system or you can change the system. When I talk about democracy or devolving power, I talk about direct democracy, different concept. What that means is you don't give a representative a blank blank cheque to make decisions for you. What you do is you make decisions at a local, state, federal level regarding particular issues and then you appoint or elect delegates to carry out those decisions on your behalf. And if those delegates do not carry out those decisions, you can recall them. So how can we improve? Now, obviously, that would require revolutionary change. It would mean tearing up the, con- the, const- the current constitutional framework. It would be, we'd be actually looking at creating a new type of society, and that's where public interest before corporate interest comes into it. Now, public interest before corporate interest is a potential federal political party and a social movement which is based on the concept of putting the interests of the many, that's the public, before the interests of the few, that's private corporations. Very simple. It's about turning round the power imbalance as far as so-called representative democracy is concerned. And I'll speak about them later on. I've been secretary, you know, I will speak about it. So let's look at the current parliamentary system because there's an election which will be coming up in three to four months, a federal election which will somehow determine the direction this country will take in for the next three to six years. Now, the current government, Liberal National Party, is in a total turmoil. And nothing highlights this more than the contempt the Prime Minister has for the local branches of the Liberal Party. 
In the Liberal Party, we have seen a concerted effort, and the National Party, a concerted effort by radical, fundamentalist, religious groups and radical, fundamentalist, three traders capture the heart and soul of that party. And we are seeing a parliament which really doesn't represent the people of this country. I'll give you an example. And I like to compare the backgrounds, the work backgrounds of parliamentarians in 1988 in comparison to 2018, which was 30, you know, 30 year gap. Now, in 1988, the biggest proportion of parliamentarians, almost 25%, had an education background. The next largest group, as you would expect, would be lawyers, the law, the judiciary. Then we had unions at 13.8%. Law people were about 17%. Lawyers about 14%. Then we had a scattering of uh, other professions. Small business in 1988 was less than a percent. Political advisers was about 3.5%. The military was around 6%. And the banking finance sector is about 3.5%. So we can see that the makeup of the parliamentarians in 1988 to a significant degree reflected the country, what was happening in the country. You know, about about 14% unionists, 6% military, 24% educationists, Small number of political advisers, hardly any small business. Now let's look at the makeup of the federal parliament in 2018 because it's a really interesting. It really shows what's happened to the concept of representative democracy and how it's been hijacked by certain groups. Now the number of parliamentarians with an education background is almost halved to 12%. It was actually halved to 12%. Lawyers, as you'd expect, the judiciary has increased to 20%. That's one in five parliamentarians have a legal background. And the military representation with the professionalisation of the army has decreased to 4%, which is what you'd expect. But the big movers, there's been three big movers, and these are quite, it's, this is quite an extraordinary uh, move. And this is why we find ourselves in this current situation where people have less respect for parliamentary democracy than any time since this federation, any time. The small business representation has increased from 1% to almost 13% in 30 years. So almost 13% of parliamentary representatives come from a small business background. Now, the banking and financial sector background, that's almost tripled in size, from 3.5% to almost 10%. But the big movers have been political advisers. 
And political advisers is another term for professional politician. These are people who have decided that the best way to get on the parliamentary gravy train is to actually work in Parliament or work in the office of a parliamentarian. Today, in 2018, in the federal parliament, and again, I'm not looking at uh, political party affiliation, but in the federal parliament in 1988, 3.6%, that's about one in three out, three to four out of every hundred of the parliamentarians, there's only about 200 all told, were political advisers. In 2018, 40%, almost 40%. That's four in ten of the political representatives in Parliament, people that you elect, that you decide to put in Parliament because they have some party badge name next to their name, are political advisors. That means they've never had a bloody real job in their life and have little or no understanding of life in the community. I mean, the number of farmers has halved during that period and the number of unionists has remained stable at around 15%. But in terms of the biggest group of political representatives, they are political advisers, apprentices in parliamentarians' office who, by hook and by crook, have been able to manipulate the party system so that they are pre-selected, especially in safe seats. Extraordinary. Now, in the 1920s, parliamentary democracy had a crisis in Australia because less than 25% of people voted at the federal election or entitled to vote. And And to resolve the issue, compulsory voting was introduced in 1922, I think. Could have been 21. To push up the participation rate in elections. to push up the participation rate in elections. And at the last federal election, almost 20% of people who were on the electoral roll either refused to vote or didn't bother to vote or voted informal. Now, obviously, some people genuinely forgot it was an election day and some people genuinely made mistakes. But about one in six Australians currently, although there are compulsory voting laws, vote with their feet. They don't participate. Not because they don't believe in the concept of democracy, they prefer a dictatorship, but because we have seen so much manipulation of the so-called democratic process, that people have lost faith in the system by which they elect people. Now, what are two small reforms that can be made? Exceptionally small reforms 
that can be made. Two, the parliamentary system. Reforms that don't need, you know, blood in the streets or revolution. Reforms that don't actually mean direct democracy. But reforms which have been made in other parliamentary systems around the world, including Switzerland, which turn the tables on representatives, making them a little bit more accountable. You could have what's called citizens-initiated referendums, where the people have the power to initiate referendums to change the current constitutional arrangements. In Australia today, we have a problem. We have a major problem. The only people who can determine what questions are put to the people in a referendum or a plebiscite, which is not binding on the government, a plebiscite is not binding on the government, a plebiscite does not change the constitution, all a plebiscite does is indicate what the community is thinking. A referendum is different. If a referendum is passed by a majority of electors in a majority of states, then that change is incorporated into the Australian constitution. But the only people constitutionally can call a referendum in this country is the government of the day. And it needs a majority in both houses of parliament and it determines how the question is worded. Now, what a citizens-initiated referendum does is actually change the power dynamics in a representative democracy. It gives the people the opportunity to put questions to the population in a referendum. For example, questions about climate change. In the past, questions about marriage equality. In the future, questions about a universal basic income. And you incorporate it into the Constitution. The Constitution is the framework from which all political power evolves. It is the DNA of the type of government we have today. That's what the Constitution is. And if you have a process where you can't change the actual Constitution, then you've got a problem. Another thing we can do, which is very simple, and again, it doesn't need any... I mean, a citizens-initiated referendum, you could pass legislation in Parliament tomorrow. Another thing that can be done is the power of recall. Now, we see politicians who change their political colours mid-term or early on in the term or late in the term. We see politicians, representatives, who go back on their words, who do not honour one promise they made to the electorate, who voted for them on the basis of those promises. The other option is having a mechanism via which you can actually call a fresh election in a specific electorate in between elections if, say, 10% of the population within a four-week period sign a piece of paper saying they want a fresh election in that area because they're unhappy with the performance of that politician. If that politician is re-elected, then they're saved till the next election. So the power of recall 
would remove power from the hands of the parties which dominated the current parliamentary system in this country and put it back in the hands of the electorate who make the decision about who they want to represent them. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Now, we've we've got a few websites which are activated. If you want to do a YouTube, you're into YouTubes, go to Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Twitter, PIBCI, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. You can go to the Anarchist Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. Want to learn more about the Tana Minoway and Mall Ball Hina commemoration on, on, on Sunday the 20th of January? Go to Tana Mall, T-U-N-N-E-R-M-A-U-L dot com, tunnamall.com. Want to learn more about public interest before corporate interest? We're revamping our uh, website. Go to pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net, pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Want to learn more about the public uh, housing campaign? Public interest before go to public housing everybody's business Facebook page public housing everybody's business Facebook page or the defendant extent public housing uh, Facebook page. Want to learn about the activities that I'm personally involved in? Um, you won't find out the colour of my socks, but maybe the activities I'm involved in, not personal activities, political activities. You go to Toscano T O S C A N O number four the public Toscano the number four the public. There's very a lot of things, and we, we are organising a lot of things. But let's get back to this this discussion, one way, this monologue we should call it, because I'm actually not discussing the matter with you. I'm sh- I'm telling you, okay? And you're saying, mm, good, bad, garbage, don't like that, like that. All right, let's go back. So there's a moves afoot to create a two-party system in this country. When you hear... Former Prime Minister Mr Abbott telling electors to vote for the Labor Party before independence, you know the boy's running scared because there will be a number of high-profile independents in his electorate because the Liberal Party was stupid enough to... His local Liberal Party members were stupid enough to pre-select him again. So he's running scared about independence. He's telling people to put, you know, independence last and vote for the Labor Party before you vote for the Liberal Party. But that's just a minor sign. He's yesterday's man fighting yesterday's battles. Let's go back to this big party conspiracy. And I usually don't use the word conspiracy. But there are moves afoot to change the way that elections are funded. And we are told... These moves are all about streamlining a system and preventing big business and and unions from actually dominating the political landscape by making large donations to political parties. So, if donations are capped to $4,000, how do political parties get money in, in in a situation where... 
they are having trouble attracting members to their parties because the executives continue to make decisions and overturn decisions made by the local rank and file. For example, the Liberal Party in uh, Gilmore in New South Wales selected a local real estate agent who obviously had the numbers in that Liberal Party branch to be their candidate, while the Prime Minister felt that Mr Warren Mundine, a well-known activist, was a more suitable candidate. So what's happened there, he shot himself in the foot. The Liberal Party branches will not actually put their support behind Mr Mundine. A number of high-profile Liberals in that electorate have uh, resigned and the candidate who was shafted is going to run as an independent anyway. So, when you've got a situation where at the local branch level, only a certain type of person with certain types of ideas is welcome, and everybody else is handed out, where the branches are controlled by extremists, whether they're religious fundamentalist extremists or extremists for the Institute of Private Affairs, which masquerades as the Institute of Public Affairs, you find that the mechanism via which political parties can raise cash, money for their campaigns, dries up. And when you find the trade union movement has been almost legislated out of existence, and a fewer and fewer trade unions are actually directly affiliated with the Labor Party, they face the same problem. So in this bill, which is to be introduced into Parliament, maybe at the next Parliament or this Parliament, regarding funding, the talk will be all about putting a cap on donations so corporations and big and unions cannot dominate the party. But what they don't tell you is that the amount of money which the taxpayer will have to pay each political party will not be determined by the number of votes they gather, but the number of seats that they've won. That's right. So what this does is kill any opportunity for any small political party which is cash-strung, to one, raise donations from major figures, and two, ensures that we have a two-party system in this country. By making it illegal to actually give money to parties while ensuring that the major political parties which win the major, most seats because of the system of government we have are funded to the hilt. So they don't have to worry about diminishing branch membership numbers because of the way these political parties work and because of the policies they continue to promote. So the writing is on the wall for parliamentary democracy as we know it. And there are opportunities arising all the time. Unfortunately in this country, most of those opportunities have been grabbed by the conservative and reactionary and intolerant elements in our society who've been able to manipulate the system 
to suit them. And I don't blame them. If the system is open for manipulation, why not manipulate it to suit them? They're those types of people. Well, people with a more wide-ranging agenda, people with an inclusive agenda like us and people like Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, which has an inclusive agenda, find themselves totally on the outer as far as political representation is concerned at any level of government. So what can you do about it? Well, you can continue to vote for the major political parties. Or you can continue to vote for a minor political party whose preferences eventually go to a major political party because of the preference system we have in this country where you can't block your preferences being distributed to a major political party. So although you may put the Labor Party second last and the Liberal Party last, eventually either be Labor or Liberal that will be elected because of the nature of the way the system is actually gunned and the way the actual system is financed. You can agitate for parliamentary change. You can get involved in issue-orientated politics and forget about the major issues and concentrate on the more peripheral issues and think that's the be-all and end-all of political activism, social activism, community activism. Or you can join one of the smaller political parties that are around or groups that are trying to register federal political parties. They've got a different vision. So if you're interested in joining PIPSI, you can actually download the application form of PIPSI, P-I-B-C-I dot net. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. You can leave a message on 0439 395 489, 0439 395 489. As I said before, it's up to you. There is an election in four to five months' time. People will go through the motions. We'll see the same type of representatives 40% of political advisors, parliamentarians, which are, you know, cow town at the big end of town, who can actually make some real changes and get involved in a lot of these campaigns that have been initiated to bring politics back to the streets. You can be a social media warrior and talk the talk till you go blue in the face. You can overdose on Twitter and Facebook, you can, Instagram. You can get really excited talking the talk. Go to bed exhausted. Get up in the middle of the night. Check your messages and respond to them in the most vigorous form and go back to sleep and wake up and think you've changed the world. Or you can take back the streets and walk the walk. Join those activists understand that ultimate political authority doesn't rest in Parliament. It actually rests on the streets, in the hands of those people who are willing to take action to ensure that change, egalitarian change, occurs. I'll give you an example. Hate and intolerance. Now, you may have heard that the... Uh, the long-standing mayor of Gdansk, the home of Solidarity, the uh, union movement which saw the overthrow of communist rule in Poland in 1989. 
that their Paul, their Mayor Paul, was uh, stabbed to death. Things happen. Political assassinations happen, all right? But think again. What we've seen in that country and what we've seen in many European countries and many countries around the world over the last few years is the growing hatred and intolerance towards the other. And we've not been immune from this disease. We've seen people who should know better and people who don't know better pointing the finger at the other. The person with a different religion or wears a funny you know, thing on their heads or speaks a different language or you know, worships a different god or doesn't worship a god. And if you can actually raise that level of intolerance in a community, you can polarise a community, you can use that to dominate a community politically. And we've seen the Law and Justice Party in Poland do just that since 2015. Now, what's extraordinary about the assassination of poor Adam Wojcicki, the mayor of Gdansk, is not the fact that he was assassinated. This comes with the territory. But how the government in Poland who has come to power on a wave of hatred and intolerance is actually using that assassination as a weapon by which to justify their message of hate and intolerance. And in many regards, we see the same thing in this country. As we lurch from issue to issue to issue to issue. Anybody who listens to the news occasionally, like I do, well, I try to listen to it on a daily basis. I don't listen to commentary. I'm sick of commentary. Anybody can do commentary. Even I can do commentary. But they actually what's happening... What you notice is that rise of intolerance and how intolerance and division is used to whip up hysteria. And we've seen it in Melbourne, beautifully used, you know, in terms of the um, hysteria whipped up regarding the South Sudanese community for short-term political gain. So what we need to be able to do is move away from this dependence on issues to sustain political movements. Because issues come and go. Issues are won and lost. I mean, marriage equality was introduced in Australia after a plebiscite and after years of struggle. And I can assure you, nobody is really things really haven't changed radically for most people. And I can assure you the current struggle regarding Invasion Day will eventually be won, but it's really not going to change things that much for most people. And I can assure you that over the next 10 to 20 years, 
that state and federal governments will come to some type of arrangements with local Indigenous people through treaties, which may or may not improve you know, Indigenous people's lives. But again, the main issues never seem to be addressed. And what are the main issues? I mean, people talk about homophobia, they talk about transphobia, but I've got a new word to add to the phobic list. How about econophobia? That's right, econophobia. The phobia we seem to have in the society to look at the basic principles this society is based on. Principles which ensure the significant proportion of the community, irrespective of what gains are made at a social level, will continue to live in poverty and struggle on a day-to-day basis in order to maintain their situation in society. Econophobia is the phobia, the inability, the unwillingness to look at the fact that we have a two-tier education system in this country where where you end up on the pile, in the majority of cases, to a significant degree, is determined on the day you are born and in what circumstances you are born into, where there is no economic opportunity, no equality of opportunity, let alone equality, but equality of opportunity in this country. Econophobia is the inability of the government guild at ABC and the corporate-owned media to even mention the fact the problem of climate change is a political problem. It is a problem which has been enhanced and made worse and will be continue to be made worse by the domination of our economy, our economic system, our marketplace, by an economic ideology which is based on creating ever-increasing profits for private corporations irrespective of the human, social, environmental and costs to the country. That's what corporate capitalism is about. Econophobia is the inability and unwillingness to address the issues of economic inequality in this country, to address the issue of the need for a universal basic income in a society which is becoming increasingly more mechanised and as we grapple with the concepts of artificial intelligence and with the problem of an increasing number of human beings on this planet not actually being able to access wealth because they are denied the ability to be involved in the productive process and earn income in order to survive, faced with a social security net that has holes you could drive a double-decker bus through, you begin to understand, and that's what we understand here at the Anarchist World this week, that's what the Anarchist Institute is all about, 
That's what public interest before corporate is about. We understand that unless we are willing to openly discuss, address these issues and provide viable solutions to these issues, that growing inequality that exists in our community, not just in terms of inequality between rich and poor, but inequality in terms of power, inequality in terms about levels of opportunity for an increasing number of Australians being wiped off the slate. Well, there are figures that one in four children who attend school today, secondary college today, have major anxiety issues, and many of these anxiety issues are not due to personal weaknesses, but due to the type of society we are creating where those who contribute are treated like garbage and those who exploit other people are held up as heroes and heroines, we begin to understand that this journey we've gone on to, this ideologically based journey all the major political parties have embraced which is based on those four horrible words which you thought I was not going to utter during this program today. Privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, deregulation. You begin to understand that we are now beginning to reap the benefits of sowing seeds on barren ground. Removing regulations which protect workers... Ludicrous. Allowing corporations through you know, international trade packs to override sovereign national parliaments. Lunacy. Removing barriers to trade to allow the lowest common denominator, the, the country which pays the least, to dominate economic activity. Ludicrous. And the list goes on and on. So econophobia is that inability and unwillingness for people in authority, for the corporate-owned media, for the government-gilded ABC, for social media, to broach what are the central issues in our society. And that fundamental issue is that that far too long we, as a community, have been worshipping on Mammon's altar. We, as a community, have sold our children and, more importantly, their future to the God growth. We as a community have allowed the very organisations like trade unions and community associations which have won many of the struggles which give us the rights and privileges we hold today. We have allowed them to be legislated out of existence and people like you and me 
who are willing to slash the economic econophobics everywhere we see them to be criminalised, to be treated as criminal, to be marginalised, to be ostracised, to be seen as something not quite human is just is the state of affairs we find ourselves in 2019. And if there's one thing that the anarchist world this week will attempt to do in 2019, and all we can do is attempt to do, we can only attempt to do, we can only bring, you know, issues to the fore. We can only we can do what we can to organise things, but we are just a minuscule drop in the ocean in this society. And obviously, unless currently we are marchers in one, currently we are marching in one and one and twos. And if those street gatherings don't reach their thousands and tens of thousands, econophobia will continue to be the dominant ideology, social cultural, political, in 2019. Because for far too long, we have been sidetracked into a community that has pursued short-term social gains because we think it's impossible to tackle the bigger issues the issues which do create the inequalities, the issues we do create the anxiety, the issues which keep people hostages, the issues that which keep people in little boxes, working away if they can, in order to keep a roof over their heads. So as I said before, housing. Access to housing is fundamental. And one of the fundamental campaigns that a little group like us will be pursuing in 2019 is the public housing struggle which we began two years ago in December 2016 or over two years ago. And that public housing struggle is based on the idea that people need secure, stable accommodation in order to get on with their lives. And for far too long in the state of Victoria, which I'm familiar with, for far too long, it is the worst state in this country as far as public housing is concerned, we've seen concerted efforts by both governments and oppositions to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. We see homeless people sleeping rough on filthy mattresses within 50 metres of the steps of the Victorian Parliament House day in and day out. We see people being turfed out of temporary accommodation in Burke Street at 6am every morning. We see tens of thousands of people on on so-called social housing lists waiting, waiting for accommodation in a marketplace which is now dominated by investors because of parliamentary legislation which gives investors tax advantages. So we have said for far too long, this is a central issue. This is something that needs to be confronted. This is part of that econophobia I talked about, where we are not willing to look at alternatives. And a simple alternative is quarantining stamp duty revenue. I mean, if you buy a a hovel for $225,000, 
you're paying $8,500 in stamp duty. 6% stamp duty. Can you imagine that? Every time, $6 billion. If you allocate that to public housing, you can get rid of homelessness in a month for a spot purchasing program. You can get rid of the waiting list in a year for a spot purchasing program. You can house 15% of Victorians within a decade in public housing. And it would make fundamental changes to the economy. So what are we doing about it? Are we talking the talk? Are we so social media warriors out there talking the talk day after day, having our pictures on Instagram, having our pickies on YouTube, fighting the good fight and having a snooze? No. We're out in the streets. We encourage you to join us. 6am, Wednesday, 6th of February, on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Public housing everybody's business. Want to learn more about it? Go to the Facebook page, Public Housing Everybody's Business. Want to learn more about Pipsy? Go to their webpage, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Want to learn more about things I'm personally doing politically? Go to my Facebook page, Toscana for the public. Want to give me a ring and leave a contact uh, number? 0439 395 489. Want to write? Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 3052 Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052 A few other interesting Facebook pages Defend and Extend Public Housing Public Housing Everybody's Business The Facebook page Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Go to their YouTube channel Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Twitter P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U But again We're not just social media warriors We are people who are here so that in the future we won't be marching in ones and twos and threes and fours and fives and sixes when we make demands regarding the basic necessities of existence. There'll be thousands of us, tens of thousands of us, like in the streets of Sudan, the streets of Zimbabwe, the streets of France today. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Come along, 6th to February, 6am. And remember, it's really up to you at the end of the day. I can talk the talk and I can walk the walk. Without you joining me in walking the walk and talking the talk, the chances of change in a society which is dominated by echinophobia are nil. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Wash my hands. Oh, Lord, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.